In behavioral psychology, a punishment is defined as any change that reduces the likelihood of a behavior occurring again. Retribution is defined as legal revenge, with something being taken or inflicted upon someone else for a wrong. Let's be honest, we mix these terms up a lot. Students can only act in the ways that they've learned and only cope using the strategies they have. What if there was another way to do discipline? One that didn't chew up half your day and that actually did decrease the likelihood that you would be dealing with the same kid and the same issue over and over. If your curiosity is piqued, stay tuned. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day, we have a chance to grow. Every day, we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Improving student outcomes is A.J. Kerbill's focus. He serves as conservator at DeSoto, Texas Independent School District. And during his guidance, DeSoto improved from F ratings in academics, finance, and governance to B ratings. He's also faculty at Leadership Institute of Nevada and director of governance at the Council of the Great City Schools. He served as deputy commissioner at the Texas Education Agency and spearheaded reforms as board chair of the Kansas City Public Schools that doubled the percentage of students who are literate and numerate. And AJ is a recipient of the Educational Commission of the State's James Bryant Conant Award. Hello, AJ. Welcome to the show. Hey, Frederick. Thanks for having me. Ah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. But we always like to start with celebration. So what are you celebrating today? Celebrating today. <clears throat> um, well, in addition to celebrating your birthday, uh, <laughs> congratulations. Um, I was visiting with my superintendent um, earlier today, having a regular weekly check-in. And we were discussing some of the support systems that we're putting in place for our teachers, which is to say, how are we doing at supporting our principals and assistant principals at providing uh, stronger coaching and feedback to teachers? Um, and that work seems to be going really well. Um, our metric is to hit 70% of our teachers are receiving the uh, quality and quantity of support from their APs and principals that they need. And we're not quite there but we're on the precipice and that's because a lot of our APs and principals have just really stepped up and leaned into this work they've been really excited about the role of supporting teachers in the way that we've moved to as a school system um, and I think they've experienced 
uh, receptivity from teachers about having that additional sense of support and that visibility in the classroom in a non-evaluative manner. And so it's uh, it's been fun to watch us as a school system just move in a direction that the our educational experts, our education leaders really seem to be feeling a lot of success with. Wow. Well, you just pressed all my passion buttons with that one. Yeah. I, I advocate that our school leaders really have two fundamental jobs. First priority, keep everybody safe. And then the okay. second one is to improve outcomes for kids. And because school leaders don't teach kids, that means helping to grow our teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea that you actually have a goal, a firm goal, and then a plan for getting there and you're executing that 70% of your teachers are receiving that that high quality professional development that aligns with their interests and their needs. That's that's awesome. And we might have to record two podcasts today. <laughs> I'd love to well, hear more. <laughs> well, and it's, it's crucial because... <clears throat> Because teachers need to experience that level of support. Because teachers show up, they, they just want to be great for kids all day, every day. Uh, that's that's why people get into the profession. Um, and so really supporting them pretty much always comes down to, are we helping principals and APs be more effective? And so one of the things we started off the year, we did like this week-long boot camp for uh, principals around just feedback, where literally we talk about what does effective feedback to teachers look like. Um, and then we break out the little rubric, okay, here's what really great feedback would look like, here's what weak feedback would look like. Then we watch a video and everybody right? was that strong feedback, was that moderate, was that weak? Then it'd be all over the place. Um, and then we talk about it like, okay, so that, you know, on a scale of one to five, that was probably a four. Like, oh, well, we started off, oh, it's a what, it's a five, it's a 12, you know, just all over the place. But then after doing that for a week, you could put the example of feedback the, the teacher is providing teachers up on screen and then everybody's like just really nailing here's what it looks like and so that was the first step is do we have a shared vision of what effective feedback looks like like if all of our APs and principals are on entirely different wavelengths regarding what that looks like then we're definitely not going to get there and so that's that's where we started but then it's just been a matter of incrementally improving 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 on that practice all throughout the year and again just really proud of our uh, APs and principals and their responsiveness and the support that that's showing up for in our classrooms. Yeah. Well, I think there's three of the pillars of that, you know, common language, common expectations, and then collaboration and yeah. making sure that our teams are working together. So that's cool. Is there an origin story that kind of explains why you're doing the work that you do? Um, if there is, it has its grounding in just the support that I received as a student coming up in public schools. Uh, I bounced around a lot, went to 11 different schools, so I was pretty much always always the new kid. Um, I was pretty much always the trouble kid, you know, the, the one that I'm sure every AP just wakes up and just kind of face palms. It's like, oh, I got to go deal with H, little AJ again today. Um, and so what really stands out for me are the scenarios when educators really stood in the gap and really said, we're not 
we're not going to be impressed by all of this foolishness that you're showing us. We know that there is something more that you are capable of that we won't accept anything other than that. Um, and we just kind of taken aback by that. Well, what do you mean you won't accept anything else? Um, and really being challenged to be uh, the best version of myself. Like that, <clears throat> that is not me. That, that, that's not, that, that is not what I generated. That's what educators who were pouring into me generated. Mm-hmm. And that story, honestly, is a lot of people's stories. <laughs> a lot of us had no chance on our own merits, but for some educators stepping in, kind of giving us the metaphorical thump upside the head, you know, to really live into our potential. And uh, that's, that certainly, certainly was true for me. Uh, it's such a beautiful story. Thank you. We're here to talk today about restorative practices, student-led restorative practices. And so restorative practices in some places has almost become a kind of buzzword concept. So I want to bring clarity to what we mean when we're talking about student-led restorative practices. So can you define that for us? Yeah. So two different pieces. We'll take it in chunks. First, the restorative practices. Essentially, to understand that, you have to recognize that what we do in schools is essentially the retributive practices from the community imported into the school system. And this is just the norm. This is the status quo. That the system for addressing um, aberrant behavior in the community is not restorative by design. It's retributive by design. What did little AJ do wrong? Um, he shoplifted a candy bar. And what is the appropriate retribution the society meets out? Well, we go before the judge, and the judge is the person who determines what the retribution is. And okay, you know, six months in juvie for you. Uh, the challenge with a retributive approach to behavior is that it is about meeting out the appropriate punishment. It's not actually about holding little AJ accountable for what he did. It's not actually about training little AJ to be a responsible citizen. It's operating from a hope that if the retribution is swift and severe enough, that that will be a deterrent for future poor behavior. Um, I'm, and there are circumstances where this uh, may may be the case. And then there are circumstances where this may be necessary even when we know it's not the case. But what I would argue is that the vast majority of time in a school context, that when there is behavior that is inconsistent with the expectations and norms, that a retributive approach doesn't actually teach the behaviors that we want students to engage in. And again, maybe at some point it did, and I, I don't even know that Willie could see that, but certainly this idea that this is what um, th- th- this is what is causing students to <clears throat> um, to change their behaviors and to be more responsible, um, self-directed members of society. Like I don't, I don't see that at all. Um, maybe there was a time when children going home for five days resulted in them being reflective and having to wrestle with the consequences of their behavior. Um, these days. Sending little AJ home for five days means he's going to be playing Call of Duty for five days. No, Call of Duty for four days, Fortnite for one day. You got to mix it up a little bit. Uh, like, I just don't see that this, that identifying that little AJ did this at school and so that our 
chief way of addressing that is retribution. I just don't see that it that it works to create the behavior shift that we want. Again, if it did, I'd be all for it. Now, th- th- I'm not an absolutionist about this. Uh, or, uh, I'm not an absolutist about this in that there are circumstances where if you bring a loaded weapon into one of my schools, then we are most definitely going to meet out retribution, which is you're going to be excommunicated from the school. I'm, I'm going to actively choose against your educational self-interest and in the safety self-interest of all the other children in the school. And so the, there are moments, but the, all I'm arguing is that the vast majority of moments in a school, city, school setting aren't those moments that they, that what we really want is we'd want to treat it like we would any other instructional opportunity. So when little AJ flunks the math quiz, Frederick, what would be your response? Go back and look at the supports you need to help them master the content. Yeah. It's like, look, you flail, you failed the math quiz straight up. You, and, and there, there are consequences there. There's just natural consequences that go along with that. Like mainly you got a F, you know, in the grade book for that particular quiz. There are natural consequences that are associated with you having fucked that. Uh, but uh, as long as you're willing to take responsibility um, for this with your hard work and my support, we're going to reteach the material. We're going to create some opportunities for you to get proficient. Then, and then we're going to create some opportunities for you to you know, take the next math quiz and do your hard work and God willing, uh, you'll be able to pass next time. That's how we would respond in an instructional environment. And this is the same, and, and that's an inherently restorative approach to little AJ failing at uh, math. And all I'm suggesting is we should consider a restorative approach to failure behavior. So when little AJ flunks the behavior quiz and we, you know, I was spending the amount of time in school, we've seen massive flunking of behavior quizzes. Like that's not the behavior that we've trained for here. Um, then there should be, you know, whatever accountability needs to take, little AJ needs to take, but then the response should be, okay, you've got to be accountable for this, but with your hard work and, and my coaching, you know, we're going to get you up to where you need to be so that the next time that behavior quiz comes along, you're in a position to take it. And so that's the difference in a restorative uh, approach to behavior rather than a retributive approach to behavior. AJ, I want, <laughs> I want to unpack this uh, because you said something that I think is really profound that I had never thought about and never heard anybody say regarding restorative practices. If school leaders out there, if you're in a school that advocates reteaching and providing supports for kids in order to master academic concepts, you're already doing restorative practices. You're doing restorative academic practices. I've not thought about that. And I think that's so powerful um, because it, it, it focuses on the restoration, not on the discipline. And what a great way to communicate to teachers. Like we're not talking about non-consequences, right? We're already doing this. We're just using the same kind of philosophy that we bring to academics. Let's bring that to behavior. I mean, Frederick, can you imagine little AJ flunks the English quiz? And our response is, you're going to hope for five days. (laughs) And debit while you're out, you better figure out English. Like, Like that's just like nobody would think to do that. Right. And all I'm suggesting is that behavior ought to be something that we think of in an instructional context in the same way that we think of academics. 
Uh, there, there have to be consequences. This is not a consequence-free environment. It's actually a consequence-rich environment. There has to be a framework in which little AJ takes full responsibility for their behavior and, and that we co-create specific steps that little AJ is going to take to repair the harm that they've created. And not just the harm they've created to you know, the person who is on the receiving end of their actions, but also the harm they've created for themselves, often reputational harm, but also the harm they've created to our learning environment. You know, if little AJ, you know, pushed little Frederick, the harm isn't just a little Frederick and the harm isn't just a little AJ. The, the harm is also to our learning environment because now little Mary over here is also wondering, wait a minute, am I, am I going to be the next one who's going to be pushed? Well, now instead of focusing all my attention on my algebra studies, I'm focusing 80% of my attention on algebra and 20% of my attention over here watching, am I going to be the next one who gets put? Like that's tangible harm to our learning environment that little AJ authored and that little AJ has to be accountable for and has to come up with a plan to how are you going to repair the harm that you created? But simply sending you home for five days is radically unlikely to repair that. During that five days, little Mary and little Frederick may breathe easily. But when little AJ gets back, everybody's going to be on full alert because they know intuitively that that five-day hiatus has not manifested in a radical transformation behavior. So that's the restorative side of it. The other part you asked about was the student-led because I'm actually much more interested in student-led approach to restorative practices rather than adult-led. And the main reason for that is one dad just woke up and had this insight. This is going to be super profound, Frederick. You're not ready for this. There are more students in the building than there are adults. <gasps> uh, it, the, the challenge with a restorative approach is it often takes time. Time that educators just don't have. Like, um, if you're the teacher, and little AJ and little Mary have a conflict, there's probably nothing you'd love to do more than sit down and work with them and help them process through it, help them build the uh, regulations, uh, skill set that they need to really be effective members of society. But you don't have time to do that because in 15 minutes, you've got to get to your next class and you got 35 more kids walking through. And so you don't have that conversation. You just say, little AJ, do this, little Mary, do that, move on. And so we haven't actually developed in them the skills to actually um, be effective, responsible members of society. You know, we, we've taken the shortcut. And the only reason we've taken the shortcut isn't because you don't care to develop the skills, you just don't have the time. But what if we train students in the building, such that when little AJ, little Frederick get into conflict, instead of going to the AP, it goes to a group of students who we've specifically trained to lead through a restorative process, lead through the work of little AJ having to be fully responsible for his behavior and developing a plan to repair the harm that he's created. Well, then those students would be in a better position to actually spend the time necessary. They may miss a class or two, but all of them are getting really intense training and practice in what it is to be responsible, accountable adults. I, I, I take that e even at the expense of missing perhaps the next uh, grade period. And so in that way, not only are students getting the restorative training that they need in the area of behavior, but also we're doing so in a way that isn't taking adults away from their other instructional duties. That's really freeing them up to be focused on the tasks that they need to be freed up to focus on while still providing the depth of conversation and engagement that students need. And so that's why I'm, I believe in a student-led approach to restorative practices and working with a few high schools right now to help deploy this and really transition to a point where a few years from now, and this is fully blown out, 
that almost all infractions that come up instead of going to adults will default to going to a group of students. And only if they can't work it through the process, will they then escalate it on to the adults? Yeah. Well, I love it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to ask you to go into the steps in a, in a minute to, or two here, but I'll, I want to point out, I think one other thing, because moving to something like this, again, the, the first big step is checking our own attitudes and checking our own beliefs okay. and our own assumptions. And in some ways that's the hardest part, right? Um, so I think understanding that so much of what we do now and partly because of time, but we also get focused on equality. We have to treat everybody the same. And when we do that, when there's an offense, when there's a breakdown in behavior, I focus on the, what was the behavior? Because I'm going to treat everybody the same. So if I'm going to treat everybody the same, I have to, I have to focus on the what happened. But the problem is, you know, what happened is rooted in the why. Yeah. So, but to understand why I have to focus on the person. And when I start focusing on the person, now I'm looking at equity, not equality. Right. And, and I think that's one of the fundamental challenges and tensions that we have as we start to um, move into this work. And for people that, that might be thinking restorative practices make sense, but maybe have that emotional reaction to it. It's moving from, from equality and the what to equity and the why and the people behind that. So uh, let's, when we look at the steps in the framework, let's actually take this from perspective of an assistant principal. So I'm an assistant principal. There's an incident that happens. Maybe I don't even get involved in it at all. I don't know. What does that look like? Something that would have come to my office that would have been a classic discipline thing. Mm -hmm. AJ pushes Frederick or whatever. What does that look like from the assistant principal standpoint when there's student-led restorative practices? So the ideal scenario, um, which doesn't always work out, as you know, master schedules in a high school can be a little bit, you know, a bumpy process. But the ideal scenario is that you have one classroom that's set aside, one learning space that's set aside somewhere in the building, and it is full-time, just custom set aside for this purpose. And that each hour throughout the day, you know, it's what, seven hours a day, eight hour, whatever your schedule is, that there's a group of students in there who effectively have a study hall, unless something comes into the room that is for them to work through the process, in which case they get together with the students involved, they go through the process that they've been extensively trained on, um, and they go through the um, and see if they can reach the completion of the process um, where little AJ and everyone else involved have agreed to a plan that little AJ will be leading of what are the exact SMART goals that will be accomplished over the next seven day period to begin the process of repairing the harm that little AJ has created. And if they can get to that point where everyone involved, the author of the harm, little AJ, the receiver of the harm, little Frederick, you know, the, the students who are facilitating the conversation. Uh, if everyone can agree on a plan that they believe is sufficient for little AJ to lead of repairing the harm, then uh, we're done here and we, you know, give little AJ the seven days required to go out and implement the plan and repair the harm. And if at the end of that, the there is agreement, uh, you, again, unanimous, um, agreement that the 
plan was implemented, if the harm was addressed, then we're done here. And it never, it never actually goes to the AP. It's, it's just done. And so that regard, it actively has the effect of taking things off of your caseload. Only if students are going through that, and for whatever reason, you know, we get into the conversation a little, AJ is just unwilling to be fully accountable for his behavior, unwilling to accept responsibility for what he's created, and unwilling to accept the steps that his peers believe are necessary for him to repair the harm. In that case, I'm like, all right, um, we aren't able to complete this process. It's all right. We're going to send you to um, the AP's office and it'll go through whatever the normal process it would uh, otherwise go through. So I think one of the interesting things as we talk about this for adults is that so much of the work is done by the kids, right? By the young people. And so that's where I imagine the focus of the training is going to be. It, if you're introducing this to a school, I mean, just tell me what that whole process looks like. Somebody reaches out to you and then how, yeah. how do you start moving a school towards that? So this, this is a really insightful question on your part. And that for the high schools I'm working with right now, it's in one particular district. Uh, and they've got a lot of high schools, but I'm just working with four of them right now. And you know, the superintendent reached out, hey, AJ, uh, we hear you, you know, support folks with this. Can you come through and make this happen? Because uh, we want to do this in all of our high schools. And my immediate response is, absolutely not. <laughs> that, that is not a thing. So what we can do instead is we can accept, you know, maybe one, two, three schools into a pilot. And we can deploy that pilot over a course of two years to try to get folks to a place of effectiveness. Now, in the system I use, and I'll give you the link, uh, the, in the, the manual I've created, there's a rubric. And that rubric reveals a score from zero to 100. And so the, the goal here is, can we get these four high schools from an implementation score of zero to an implementation score of 80 or above sometime over the next 24 month period? So we started last June. So we're coming up pretty quickly on 12 months and then we've got a whole nother 12 month period after that. So of this 24 month pilot and of all the schools in the district, we currently we're just working with four. Uh, and this was self-select. They had to apply to get into the pilot. And of all the ones that applied, we accepted very few of them, um, only accepted four. And then for the first nine months of this student-led restorative practices initiative, only of the trained adults. Nothing, no, didn't train a single student for the first nine months, only trained adults. Um, you probably have some intuition, uh, anything you want to share? Why do you think I only trained adults in the first nine months? I think ad adults are more entrenched in this system as it exists. 100%. <laughs> and like, and the problem is if you don't, if you don't win the adults into seeing this as a way to meaningfully help them lead edu an educational institution, Adults will tear it down in a heartbeat. Like it, it just won't thrive. It won't be successful. You can't do this on top of adults. You can only do this with the adults. And so that's why even in the student-led restorative practices initiative, you literally spent the first nine out of a 24-month period exclusively training adults. Every single month, you know, more and more trainings, more workshops, uh, just to get to the point where, okay, now we've met a threshold where we can actually start training students. And so we just started uh, doing our first student training recently. And 
and uh, we'll keep training students uh, throughout the summer and into the fall. And so it'll be almost 14 months later that we'll actually have the very first group of students actually leading a restorative process in their school, 14 months later. Uh, that first 14 months, we've just been training adults and then training students and putting all the systems in place, identifying what is the flow of paperwork, because there's still some amount of paperwork, um, you know, what are the processes, identifying which things are appropriate for the students to take on initially and which things are not and under what circumstances, um, what is our PD plan for bringing, for eventually training all of the adults in the building. And when I say all of the adults, I mean all of the adults. Um, if you are a custodian, you're, you're an adult, you know, all of the adults in the building, what's our plan to eventually get them all trained? What's our plan to eventually ideally get all students trained as well so that everybody understands in this building, when you violate the norms, this process starts with a group of students and ideally it ends with a group of students. But if not, you know, we've always got an AP waiting in the wings to do their duty if an adult intervention is required. So when you're, when you're working with the adults, the teachers and, and the school leaders, what are the, what are the barriers or the objections that you find you most need to overcome? And then the second part of that question would be, what are the skills that are most important to develop? And probably the most challenging thing to overcome is I think largely as a byproduct of how most of us were raised, I suspect how you and I were both raised, is in our hearts, we desire retribution above all else. Plain and simple. Like if, if there's an opportunity for children to be great, uh, but it's at the cost of missing out on retribution, I think the average adult raised the way you and I were raised, we're not interested in that. Like, we're not looking for how do we inspire greatness in children. We're looking at how do we distribute retribution with the belief that that is how we will get to the type of society that we want. I think this belief is profoundly flawed and that that should not be the function of schools is to train students into retribution, train them into compliance. That, that to me is not the vision for schools. And when I talk to most educators, like are is what you're hoping to create is compliant children who will toe the line and be great factory workers. It's like, well, no, of course that's not what I want. Then why would you accept a disciplinary framework that that's what it's designed to accomplish? So that that is the only possible beneficial outcome that, that you, you should be able to count on is that children will be cowed into compliance, not actually standing in the righteousness of self-reliance, of responsibility, of personal accountability. Like, why, why aren't those the things that we want for children? No, but I think in our hearts, we've been trained. We, we seek after and we desire retribution. And, and so I hear people say, well, wait a minute, but there has to be a punishment. This child has to be beaten or whatever the appropriate thing is. And, and I think that that lives so deeply in so many of our hearts that the idea that that might not actually accomplish the things that we want for children doesn't even occur to us. I think that challenge more than any other is the one that I encounter in this work is that we have a heart for retribution that is so deeply ingrained that it's hard to imagine something that isn't focused on how do we punish first, teach second. Yeah. And what I'm saying is how do we teach first 
and if necessary, punish second. I remember uh, an incident when I was a middle school teacher and I had a kid uh, in my class, JT, and he struggled throughout the year, um, sometimes disengaged, sometimes um, showed some, you know, some animosity. And I, I worked hard as a teacher. I loved my kids. I was passionate. I worked really hard. And when kids didn't, weren't successful under my teaching, it hit, it hit me personally. And yeah. I remember one time JT's in there and, and I'd put all this work into a lesson. We were doing this group activity, you know, kids were breaking into groups and I was excited and most kids were engaged and JT just kind of sat back and, well, this is just stupid. And, and I just, I was livid and I sent him out of the hall and I just laid into him. And the story I was telling myself while I did this was, this is what he needed in order for me to fix him or get him right. I needed yeah. to just tear into him. But the truth was he yeah. hurt me and I was going to hurt him. Like that was, that yeah. was the sad, the sad truth. Um, and, and I think back to that 30 year old person that I was, and I think to, to who I am now. And I hope that what I would do with JT is be thinking, Hey, what's happening? <laughs> like what's going on? Um, and, and it seems to me that, you know, that's, so that's gotta be a big part of it is, is helping people think about, wait a minute, we need to focus on the kids again. It's not just this behavior and it's, it's not about us. And I think that's yeah. another challenge that teachers face. We're so passionate and we're so focused on our, our work. I mean, 90% of the bad behaviors misbehaviors in schools kids don't care about the teacher they got a lot of other things on their mind so it's yeah. not about it's not about us you know this is i don't know anyone who's had children i don't know if you have children or not but i don't know anyone who's had children or anyone who's ever been a teacher who if they're authentically really reflecting on our own behaviors doesn't have the exact same story. Doesn't have our own little JT as well. Like I, I, I think of the time, whether with my own kids or with students, where it has absolutely been in service of my own emotional frustration, pain, anguish. Uh, but I, but I can't think of a single time in in my entire life where I, where I consequenced a student into greatness, where where I punished a student into greatness, where where I you know, meted out a sufficient quantity of retribution that a student uh, stood in greatness as a result of that. And so the the, the punishment, the, the retribution, I, I've just not had the experience of that causing children to be great. Uh, children having to wrestle with the consequences of their actions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but me inventing and, you know, creating punishment and retribution out, out of a misplaced need to address my own kind of emotional frustration in the moment. I've not had the experience of that causing greatness um, in students. Um, you know, but to be you know, just fair about it, I think it takes a very emotionally mature leader to do what you just did is to reflect on that. It's like, yeah, this is, this is, this is who I was pretending to be in the moment, but it's not actually but that's not actually who I was being. I was pretending that this was about them, but really who I was being in the moment is about me. But I can say that about so many moments of my own leadership today, but I was not emotionally enough mature 
uh, I did not, I lacked the emotional maturity to have recognized and honored and really been responsive to that being the reality of my behavior in the moment. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that is part of why I have to spend nine months training adults is we create opportunities for the adults to wrestle with these moments when my behavior and as it relates to the students under my care wasn't grounded in their needs. It was grounded in mine. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, we're going to take a moment of, of silence here. Actually, I want listeners to just pause and think about this for a minute, because I think what I heard you say, AJ, is you've never been punished into greatness. You've never been consequenced, not not con- punished into greatness. And, and I'm trying to run through the scenarios in my life. And I, again, I, I don't think there was any ever a time that a punishment made me a better person or a more capable person. So I just want to pause for 10 seconds. If you're on your drive home or whatever, think about that. Can you identify a time when you were punished and that made you, took you to greatness or made you better? I'm guessing for many people, not, you know, I can think of one time actually where somebody gave me some pretty negative, uh, negative comments, but that person I had been in a relationship with for I was decades, say the exact same thing, the level of, of trust. Yeah. I can think of one example, but it was, it was, a, but it wasn't the punishment. It was the relationship I had with them. That was the difference. Like, it's like, I anguished over having disappointed them and so had there not been any type of punishment associated with it i still the anguish wasn't grounded in the punishment the anguish was grounded in the relationship yeah and those hard words weren't said to me out of anger or trying to hurt me they were like you need to hear this you need to understand this and it was about me it wasn't about them so it wasn't about them at all exactly yeah yeah wow okay so I'm trying to think of where, where we need to take this next. So I guess two, two things. One, what are the conversations that as pr- assistant principals could actually be, begin having now with teachers if they thought this is a direction that may be worth us going and we know we're not going to snap our fingers and do this, but they're thinking we need to look more into this. But what's a conversation that I could go in and have a teacher with after listening to this podcast, I could go in tomorrow and have that conversation that would just start to kind of get at some of those underlying foundational ways that we're looking at our world. Yeah. So um, first, I'm just a huge fan. I I love where you always take these conversations and and this is no exception to that, Uh, that this idea that one thing an AP might do is just send the link through this podcast out to their teachers and like, hey, listen to this and let's have let's have a discussion about it. Let's just, you know, w- what did you hear? What did you think? And what made sense to you? This AJ guy, it sounds like hooey. Like, like let's just, just have an open dialogue about it and discussion. You know, but pushing people exactly the way you did just a moment ago to really take a moment to be reflective um, in, in my own life, reflective in my own practice. Like, what is true for me? Not what are my opinions about things, none of that. Like, 
what is my actual experience been and take a moment to reflect on what has been the truth of my experience and where does that match up or not match up? Uh, and I did start there. If after that people are like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not sold. I'm not convinced, but I'm curious if there's a place of curiosity, which is a powerful place for a team of educators to live in. You know, if, if there's a place for curiosity after that reflection and after that conversation, then yeah, there's a, uh, you know, there a number of books people could read, uh, folks could read the manual that I've developed. Yeah, like I said, I'll give you a link you can put it in the show notes. Um, and they can go from there and say, okay, so would implementing something like this even make sense you know, for us? But but I think that question of would implementation make sense, I think that's a secondary question. I don't, I don't think that's the first question. I think the first question is, what do we think about this conversation? To what extent does it apply to us? What do we think it, it is that we are creating on behalf of our students right now? And does it match our aspirations? Or is is what we're producing in the lives of our students matching what we intend today? Or are there areas of improvement? And even if there's areas of improvement, that's not to say that student-led restorative practice is the answer. You know, maybe there's something else. But I think that's where you start first is what has been our experience? You know, and what, if, what kernel of truth lives in that? And, and to what extent has that created what we want for our students and where it has let's celebrate that uh, but where it hasn't let's get curious about that and, and then maybe interrogate are there things about um, a student-led approach to restorative practices that would make sense for our campus i i love that and i think it's such a powerful critical point and and practice for school leaders to take take the third party and put the third party out there right and 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 don't say Oh, I think we should do this. It's I thought this was this was a really interesting conversation. Interesting. Right? I haven't made it my mind up yet. This was really interesting. I want you to listen to it and then let's talk about it. Because when you do that, then the conversation could be honest because you yeah. and I aren't in the room and they can say whatever they exactly. want. It can have the honest conversation. And especially if you say, let's just have the conversation. Don't go in and say, we're going to do this but forward that, yeah, and say, hey, listen to this and, and let's talk about it. What do you think? What, how did you react to these different, these different things? Um, you know, and I always like just to go through my little five-minute coaching thing, which is what did you take away that really resonated with you? What was, what was good? Um, what surprised you the most from that? And then were there things that you would push back against? Um, yeah. and, and just have that. I think that's a, and it's such a safe way right? Because if, if you forward that to 10 teachers and they all say, hey, now nah, we didn't, that didn't make sense to us. Then, you know, there's something you got to go in a different yeah. direction. Yeah. But if they see the value in it, they'll start driving that conversation. Absolutely. And, and that's, and that is why you can't force this on a whole bunch of school, but you, you can't force people into a uh, out of a retributive framework into a restorative. People have to choose to walk that journey. You, you can certainly create the context for that journey to take place. You can you know, certainly put whatever resources out there to help enable a successful journey. And you may even reach a point where at some schools that I've had the privilege of observing or at where we don't hire anybody in the school unless they're already on the journey. <laughs> but 
Um, but that's that's much further down the road. Um, but but really giving people the spaciousness they need to really reflect on this. I know as the more I got into this work, the more it radically changed my approach to parenting. It didn't just make me you know, different in my work with students. It made me different in my work with you know children in my own household. Mm-hmm. And and so that 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 again is not a journey that can be forced. Uh, people can't be you, you will be you know, you will be restored. You will be. Um, no, it's people have to choose it for themselves. And I think as leaders, the task is, you know, how do, how do we open the door for people to get curious about that and, and to be reflective of their own practice? Yeah. Oh, this has been a great conversation. <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I want to ask you a couple more things as we start to wrap this up. So the first one is, what part of your own leadership are you still trying to get better at? Yeah, I am a horrible communicator. Absolutely horrible. Anybody who's had the misfortune of having to tolerate me uh, in leading any type of initiative has had to deal with that. And so this is an area where I'm constantly trying to understand. I just need to get always trying to get better calibrated. What is it that that the other people on the team need um, that I'm the person responsible for getting to them, for communicating to them? And this has just been a perennial area of weakness for me. Fortunately, I've got some really good partners in the work right now that do a good job of kind of thumping me in the head. It's like, all right, AJ, people need to hear this and they need to hear it from you. Make it happen. It's like, oh, yep, you know what? I should have picked up on that myself. Yeah, let, let me get after that. Um, but it's 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 important. That, you know, people people need to know where the leader stands on issues. Um, it's it's not okay to leave a complete vacuum of clarity. Um, and unfortunately. I've, I've been one of those folks who too often made the mistake of like, okay, so I've thought this through. And so I just assume that everybody else has thought this through the whole thing. I mean, just horrible rookie stuff, right? Um, but it's, it's definitely an area where I'm constantly trying to grow. Mm, thank you. And if listeners could take away just one thing today from the show, what would you want them to take away? I, I would encourage folks to just be reflective. Uh, and this is something, you know, you know, education professionals are already generally demonstrated proficiency at. Uh, when I lead tra- trainings and workshops for school board members and superintendents, they tend to have a very different tone than the trainings and workshops I lead for teachers and social workers and APs and principals. Um, there's just the closer folks are to students, the, the more kind of automatic nature of being reflective in the practice seems to be. Um, but that, that's certainly what I encourage people to lean in because it's just you know, normally being asked to be reflective of your practice in a content area. And this work, restorative approach to behavior invites people to be reflective in your practice um, in your relational work. Like who, how are you showing up as a human helping younger humans in the learning process of being awesome humans uh, and so just being reflective of where has that worked where has that not worked um, and, and what are the things I'm willing to change in my own behavior to really create a pathway for my students to be great yeah so we're gonna put links in the show notes for everything but people that are reflecting on this and are curious and would like to learn more about you and the work that you're doing and maybe how to start on this journey where should they go? 
they can just check me out at ajcrable.com. It's A-J-C-R-A-B-I-L-L.com. Uh, folks are curious about uh, the new book. It's mostly about school boards, not about schools, uh, but they can learn more at greatontheirbehalf.com. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks. This has been so much fun. And I think we'll have to have another conversation again sometime. Well, I would definitely look forward to it, especially as we wrap up year one of implementation with these four high schools and then move into year two. Might have to have you come out and see some of the work. Like once you've seen what students can do when um, given the skill set and entrusted with the uh, responsibility for it, like once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And so uh, if it's something that you're curious about, I would love to have you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, AJ. You have a blessed day. Okay. AJ has given us a lot to think about. Traditional discipline practices take an equality approach by focusing on the what, the offense, and then prescribing a consequence that's rooted in retribution, not education. In contrast, student-led restorative practices take an equity approach by focusing on the who, the student, and then developing a consequence that aligns to the offense. And once implemented, student-led restorative practices are less work for teachers and administrators, less work. Our traditional practices provide a veneer of accountability, but as AJ pointed out, suspending a kid for five days so they can go home and play video games does not provide accountability. Repairing the harm and developing the social and emotional skills to become whole, that is accountability. There are other approaches to changing how we do discipline in schools, and many of them are significant improvements over traditional practices. If discipline is a substantive challenge in your school, please consider doing something. AJ's suggestion to forward this show to some of your teachers and have a discussion was spot on. Any big change needs to come from teacher initiative. So please share this episode and simply say, there are some interesting ideas here. Let's talk about it. If you decide to act, please consider reaching out to AJ at ajkrabeel.com or email me at frederick at frederickbuskey.com. I would love to hear what happens. After the show, AJ and I committed to bringing a group of students onto the show to talk about their experiences in facilitating restorative practices. So look for that episode to come out later in the fall. Thank you for including me on your leadership journey. And I'll look forward to seeing you again on Friday when we recap this week's daily emails. I'm Frederick Buskey, and thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Assistant Principal Podcast. Cheers. Mm -hmm.